Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Barbara Lamb to the show today. She is a highly qualified, certified clinical hypnotherapist. She specializes in regression therapy for examining and releasing memories of post-traumatic stress syndrome. She is the author of Crop Circles Revealed and Alien Experiences, along with Nadine Lalich. And we're here today to talk to her about how it is through hypnosis and regression. She's able to help people lose weight, stop smoking, promote good health, balance their emotions, to improve sleep patterns, all the things that she does in her profession as a MFT and CHT and MS, but also how she's able to help people access their abduction experiences. She's one of the leaders in her field in this area, and we welcome her to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm pleased to. Well, I think the first thing I want to share with you is that I don't think most of us, myself included, know enough about regression and about your work in hypnotherapy to understand how you're able to do what you're doing. And I wondered if you could create a frame of reference for us about what your work is about on a primary level, and then we can go into how you're able to help people in regression in these different areas. Okay, that's wonderful. Yes, well, regression is actually a form of hypnosis. I know a lot of people wonder about hypnosis and think of it as kind of some mystical booga-booga sort of thing, and really it isn't. Hypnosis is just simply helping somebody to get into a very nice deep state of relaxation. And when someone is being hypnotized for a regression, that is to go back to remembering the details of something that they have experienced, most of which they don't remember consciously, it helps to assist that person to get into that nice state of deep relaxation and yet remain conscious and aware enough to hear my voice and my questions and to be able to access the material that they're looking for uh, that can come up from the subconscious mind when they're very deeply relaxed. Uh, The person also needs in regression to be conscious enough to be able to talk out loud and tell me what's happening that's coming up on the inside in terms of their memories, or actually, as I prefer to think of it, um, as they are reliving the experience that we've gone back to. So the person is going through the experience that we've returned to in the regression. They go through it moment by moment by moment, and they're reporting what they're aware of moment by moment. And my function, as I see it, as the regression therapist, is to uh, continue to ask questions and reassure them that they're doing well with this and uh, keep on going, see what's happening next. And I ask very questions in guiding the regression. In other words, I say, um, what are you aware of now or what's happening now? What do you see around you? Are you by yourself? Is there anyone else there? Um, you know, just questions to keep it going, but not to put any influence or any ideas into that person's mind. So it really is for the person 
a going back to something that has happened and reliving it, as I've said, moment by moment by moment. And this is very different than um, when we're conscious and awake and we are remembering an incident and we're telling it like a story. We're telling it in the past tense, like I did such and such, and then someone came in and, you know, they, they're talking about it in the past tense um, as if it's already a complete story. But in the regression, um, nobody knows what's going to come up from the inside. The person doesn't know, and I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, so it's sort of an interesting process, an interesting mystery that seems to be unfolding. And after uh, doing this process for an hour or sometimes more, um, then it all begins to make sense. It begins to form a whole incident. And in the case of this type of work, bringing somebody through a regression to an experience that's happened with other beings, we tend to think of them as extraterrestrial beings, um, you know, they can encounter all kinds of different aspects of that experience, some of which uh, may be frightening to them, especially at first. Uh, some of the aspects might seem quite negative to them. And on the other hand, and it's important to mention this, uh, some of the aspects of these experiences are actually very positive for them, uh, very educational, very enlightening, um, and many really fascinating good things happen too. So um, it's it's not all a dreadful situation, although I think that the media has tended to talk about alien or extraterrestrial abduction um, in a very negative, very frightening way. And that does represent some people's experiences, especially when they haven't relived the experience in regression and they don't know the full picture yet. You've done over 3,000 regressions, haven't you? Well, I've done over 3,000 total, including uh, many years of doing past life regressions. I started that all with uh, five years of training in the mid-1980s. But in regard to working with people with the extraterrestrial encounters, it's nearly 2,000 regressions. Wow, that's a lot. And with more than 700 individuals who've come to me in the last 20, 21 years. So it's a lot of material, and I've certainly been convinced over this time that Many, many, many people worldwide, in fact, are having these encounters. And everybody seems to remember these encounters to a different degree. Um, some people, for instance, will remember nothing at all about having anything to do with this until something, somehow, suddenly they might be triggered, like triggered by something they read or a picture they see or maybe a television program or a film or something, and it will start to trigger memories of incidents that they've actually had. And uh, sometimes people are not really aware of any details about this sort of thing, but they go through the life um, thinking, 
you know, something has happened to me, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, but all is not well. Or a person might have a lot of fears, like, for instance, fears of going to sleep at night, and they don't know why until they begin to remember that, oh, yeah, maybe they've awakened a number of times, and sometimes a person will wake up in the night, and uh, they'll notice that there's a bright light coming in the room uh, from outside, from the window, and or they'll notice there are some very unusual-looking beings um, standing by the bed, and they recognize these beings as not being human beings. So that's a very uneasy feeling, as you can imagine. And then, typically, um, they are not able to move or call out or even reach out to anybody who might be sleeping in the bed with them. Um, and they they can't get up. They can't seem to resist. And then, usually, the next thing they know they're being levitated up out of the bed. And even if they're remembering this much, they can recall being uh, sort of transported somehow through the solid wall. And, of course, these things are very mysterious, and different people remember different amounts of the beginning of the encounter. Or sometimes they'll remember just the last few moments of the end of an encounter. So, you see, some people do remember these little bits and pieces of memory and really um, wonder about that and are frightened about that. And also sometimes people wonder because they wake up and they have some unusual new physical markings on their body. They might be like a little pattern of pinprick-looking marks forming a ring or a circle or a triangle or a straight line, or they might have unusual bruises, and they're thinking, you know, I couldn't have done that during the night. How did that get onto my skin? Or they'll have a scoop-shaped mark, or a perfectly straight line cut that might be an inch and a half or so long. And again, they're thinking, well, there's nothing that I could have possibly done in my sleep you know, that would have caused that sort of marking or that bruising. Sounds pretty scary. This part of it for people that have no frame of reference is really scary. I want to bring us back just a little bit to talk about the subconscious in order to deepen our understanding of why you're able to do this. Yes. Is it true in your experience and in the science of this work that the subconscious contains everything? All recorded experience? Yes, I, I believe, and I think there's lots of study on this. I do believe that that is true, that no matter what we experience, whether we're asleep and it's a dream or we're perfectly conscious and awake, or in this case where we're made to be unaware by these other beings in an encounter, um, so even if we're not consciously aware of something having occurred, having happened with us, the subconscious mind does record it. And that's why when we go into that nice, deep state of relaxation and the person is more open and receptive, this material, the memories, can come up from the subconscious mind. It's, it's a wonderful thing, I think, that we have this. 
And many people, you know, when they wake up in the morning or they're awake in the middle of the night and they're aware that something peculiar is happening, they attribute it to a dream, particularly when they wake up in the morning. And we can understand why they do this. They've just been sleeping. And so it totally sees that whatever is going on um, must be a dream. That's a comfortable way to think of it, and it kind of makes sense to the person. Um, But yet, if we do regress to whatever that incident was, um, if it's a dream, um, nothing further would come up from, you know, that experience because it wouldn't have been a real experience. But if it was a real experience, then it does unfold and has a tremendous amount of reality to it. So after um, the person finished with the regression, and we're always talking about it a bit, debriefing it and sort of integrating what happened, you know, I always say, well, what did that seem to you? How real or not uh, did that experience seem to you? And, you know, almost invariably they'll say, well, you know, it, it, it just seemed absolutely real. I don't see how I could have made that up. And yet, as with any kind of hypnosis or any kind of regression work for any topic at all, um, a person might say, I know it was real, but I wonder if I could have made that up. And I can understand that because in the last 25 years, I've had quite a number of regressions done by my colleagues on me. And even though while I'm going through whatever that material is that's coming up in the regression, um, I'm completely into it. I'm totally convinced. And I know it's real. And yet, you know, after I've come out of it, I think, gee, I wonder if I could have made that up. (laughs) It just seems to be one of our natural human reactions. But on the whole, people do um, sense and feel quite convinced, except for that question that comes and goes quickly. Uh, they do feel that, okay, this this has really happened to me. Several months ago, I interviewed Dr. Roberta Temis, who was one of the people that brought hypnosis to the medical field many years ago. We didn't talk about the subject of any type of ET regression, but she had said that it is possible through the subconscious for people to quit smoking in like an hour, with an hour of hypnosis, literally an hour. Oh, sure. And by phone even, which blew my mind. And also I interviewed several of the remote viewers in the Stargate program, and they said that the subconscious carries everything, the past, the present, and the future. You can access things going on. I don't know if you agree with that, but it's interesting. I do, actually. And it is perfectly possible to do a progression rather than a regression, a progression to the future. And there have been certain people who've really made almost, you'd say, a lifetime study on progressions. Dr. Helen Wambach, for instance, back in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, used to work with um, large groups of people, well, 40 or 50 at a time, regressing them all at the same time. 
and she would regress them to uh, whatever period of history they felt inclined to go back to, and uh, she would take them through what we consider to be past life regressions. And then in those workshops, for those who would like to participate in this, she would do a progression and let them choose which time frame in the future, maybe 50 years from now or 250 or 1,000 years or whatever, into the future. And it was amazing the details that came up from people's progressions. She even um, was working on a book about this called Mass Dreams of the Future. And then she became infirmed and died. And her colleague working with her, Dr. Chet Snow, um, he carried on the work and actually published that book, Mass Dreams of the Future. And the thing that is so amazing about it is that out of, oh, several hundred people who would regress, this was over a period of a few years, but who would progress to a particular time period, let's say 250 years from now, what they came up with in terms of the material from their progressions remarkably agreed with each other. Wow, that's wild. Pretty powerful. And we can't help but wonder, wow, is that really going to be true? So we don't know, but I think that that's a very interesting subject. And then, of course, we know that remote viewers have a way of going into the past or into whatever the subject is um, anywhere in the world currently. And they also, allegedly, um, do see into the future. So I, I do think that in our total makeup with our higher knowing, shall we say, our higher self, and also the uh, subconscious mind, there is just so much that we have access to that usually we don't even think about, you know, as we go through our daily lives. I think it's remarkable that hypnosis and regression therapy works and that somehow you're able to get the agreement from the person who's allowing you in to bypass their conscious mind. That's pretty remarkable by itself. <laughs> I know. Oh, if that is, to me, the mastery of the profession, that you're able to facilitate that. Yes. Well, we have to keep in mind here that people come voluntarily. Right. I mean, I never seek out somebody to regress, but people, one way or another, hear about my work, and, and they contact me and ask for a regression. So that's, that's how it all begins. So in other words, each one of those people is willing to kind of go into a different state of awareness in order to find out what they want to know. How do you know as the therapist whether they're just spouting off stuff or whether it really happened? How do you distinguish that? Well, that's such a good question, and that's very important. When the person is in regression, I'm right there, sitting maybe two or three feet away from the person, and I'm not only hearing what they're saying, but I'm right there to observe their body. So if they're going through something that's causing emotion, 
positively or negatively, um, I can see that. I can see it in their face. I can see it in their breathing. I can see it in minor body movements as they're lying there in the regression. And I think that um, if they were just making it up, they they wouldn't you know, react that way. It wouldn't be in their faces and their body movement. But because it's real, you can see that on the outside as well as hear what they're saying from their inner awareness. And I'm sure after so many people that you've done this with, you as an instrument get better in terms of detecting Oh yeah, and discerning what's in front of you. That's right. Yeah, we, we do definitely body build a body of skills here, and I would imagine an invisible body of skills. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like nine tenths of it, people don't see when they first meet you, but it's going on in the sessions. Fabulous. Did you ever meet Brian Weiss? We did meet Brian Weiss. Uh, I used to be very active with the Association for Past Life Research and Therapies based in California, and um, we had conferences once or twice every year, and he came to two or three of those. He's a very interesting man. I read Many Lives, Many Masters. Yes. Very interesting, and I think he is putting forth the progression therapy, too, now. Well, he might be. I'm not aware of that, but I do have a close friend and colleague here in Southern California who uh, went to a training with him last spring. Wow. Um, she, too, you know, was impressed with what a wonderful man he is. I certainly feel that as well. And is such a huge contributor, really, to society by um, bringing forth in the medical profession and the psychiatric profession, bringing forth um, the whole field of regression work and how wonderful that is for people, how people can resolve all kinds of problems that were not resolved any other way by um, doing a regression back to the source of that problem. Have you ever had someone come in, Barbara, and say, I don't know why I'm here. I just want to be happier, healthier. I don't have the joy I used to have or I'm carrying too much weight or whatever stuff that may not be a big deal to you, like the kind of regressions you're doing, but something's not quite right. Oh, yes. And they don't know why they're there. Well, that really happens quite a lot. And so we begin to talk and slowly, bit by bit, and they're conscious here, um, it begins to come out certain things that, you know, have really uh, saddened them. Maybe they've had some grief that's not resolved or uh, maybe with they're connected with the wrong kind of person or they're not getting on with what they feel they ought to be doing in life. I mean, there are all kinds of things that come up or maybe they're very frustrated they're maybe they're very angry they have unresolved anger um, so there's so many things that can come up these are just a few examples that are really making their life feel not right and not happy so once we've sort of you know talked about it and unearthed um, some of these different ingredients of their unhappiness then we can set about working on that, how to uh, help, how to help that person to uh, solve those particular aspects that have been troubling him or her. So very often all of this starts with talking and discussing things, and 
I, for me, it's absolutely a fascinating process. I would imagine it is. Your life is never the same from moment to moment, truly. It's true. And with each person, and I I really say this with enormous respect, um, it's like a mystery in a way. You know, what's going on with this person and how can I help that which is going on? So it's it's a very creative process, I think. Um, Years ago, back in the 1970s, when... I was in graduate school and became licensed as a a therapist. Um, I was saying to uh, my husband that, you know, I just, I loved this work, but I didn't feel like I was being very creative in the sense that I wasn't being a creative artist or a musician. And he said, are you kidding? He said, I've seen you do therapy with group therapy and you are incredibly creative, and this is your art form. And you know, that really was a wonderful eye-opener for me. And I think that since then, all these years, I've thought, you know, with each person I meet with, it is a wonderful creative process, even, if you can believe this, a joyful process. I can believe Help somebody that. out of the depths of of uh, not good functioning or the depth of unhappiness or grief or caught up in anger or depression or whatever to to help that person help himself or herself and come out of that. That is a joyful process. How much impact do you feel sense is impacting people's present existences that is coming from their past life? There's a cosmology that most of our problems, there's this belief that it comes from this place in time, right? This gestalt, this life. Yes, okay? or childhood is a very popular belief. Right. But I've seen souls come in. I've seen people come in. Like I met a two-year-old about two weeks ago. I kid you not, this child came in with something so disturbing and he like breaks things all over the house, almost possessed. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And if you go the traditional route, you know, how could someone be so young? And I'm saying if they weren't abused or something like that, but unless, if that didn't happen, that has to come in from another time and place. Well, I really agree with you very much. And I think that all of us, every single person in the world, to some extent, and that varies, of course, between people, but to some extent, we do come in with some kinds of influence from previous lifetimes that we've had. Now, in a very positive case, and there are many of these, uh, somebody might come in with, um, you know, a very early interest in a particular talent, let's say, um, early interest in music. And that, that interest in music and maybe being involved with music in various ways uh, will persist through that person's lifetime. Um, And then, Probably, um, not inevitably, but probably that interest in music had been with that person incarnated as another person in at least one previous lifetime. And then now with the case that you're mentioning, this two-year-old boy, uh, sometimes people come in with real traumas 
from having died in a traumatic way in a previous lifetime. Or they might come in with a recurrent illness and nobody else in the family seems to have that kind of illness. Or they might come in with a chronic pain in the neck, for instance. This was happened with one of my clients. And when we go back in regression to the source of that physical problem or that anger or that pain in the neck or whatever the um, topic is, the complaint for the person, um, we usually find a, well, we always find, in fact, a scenario in another time, another place, another situation when that person, or I should say that person's soul, was incarnated as a different person in the past. And we see what the trauma was. We see what that condition was. And then when the regression is about to be over, in other words, the person is about to die in that past lifetime, I always suggest that they're aware of what's happening now. How is it that they're dying? Where are they? What's going on? And then and they tell me. And then I say, okay, just simply move ahead until you've gone through the dying and you're out of your body and you can actually look back and see your body. And everyone I have ever regressed to that sort of thing where they've gone through the dying, they go through it really easily. And I think the difficult thing for most of us is the process of leading up to dying can be very difficult unless it happens suddenly. But the actual dying itself is just so easy. You just leave that body. So then I have them look back at the body to be sure that they really have finished that lifetime. And then right then and there, as a spirit having just finished that lifetime, that is the key here to getting help. And so I ask the person, what are you aware of right now? You've just finished that life. What are you aware of that you are deciding, concluding, maybe even making a vow about, that, or whatever it is that you're carrying over from that lifetime, which is carried over into your lifetime now? And I always mention the person's name now, you know, to help them get back into this lifetime. And it's just astonishing and wonderful to me how they are very clear in that state of being. They're not in the physical body, you see, at that point. They're um, very, very clear about what they've brought over that's been affecting them in this lifetime. That is remarkable work. Yes, and then the even more important part comes uh, from my point of view as a therapist, and that is that I ask if they would like to release themselves from that unfortunate thing that's been carried over. So it might be an, you know, a chronic illness sort of pattern, or it might be the pain in the neck, literally, that I mentioned, or it might be a certain belief that's running their life, such as, oh, I can never trust people or I will never love again, or I am totally worthless, I am unlovable, or whatever those sort of beliefs are that might be sort of running that person's life. 
in a subtle way, but a very important way. And um, so if they would like to release whatever that is that they've negatively carried over into this life, then I do a, a healing, clearing, releasing process. I just sort of guide them through that. And it involves um, visualization to some extent and kinesthetic feelings of letting go, being sort of cleansed and purified, letting go of whatever that was. And then standing firm, you know, free of that and vowing now to come back into this life at the current time, you know, free of that problem. And the wonderful thing is that it really makes a huge difference. I would imagine it does. And you know what's also so interesting as you're talking about this is that in order to do that with them after they've passed away in that last lifetime, that means that consciousness exists outside the body. Oh, absolutely. Which is profound. It is. <laughs> absolutely profound. It is. And you see, when I started all this work um, back in the 1970s, I had no concept whatsoever about past lives. You know, like all of us, we'd heard that in certain parts of the world, especially in the Far East and India and so forth, that people do believe in reincarnation. And I'd always thought, oh, that's kind of quaint. Okay, well, if that's what they believe, that's okay. But I didn't believe it. And what got me into this, uh, <laughs> seemingly by happenstance, but I see that it was really more than that. I think my soul was really kicking in and guiding me here. But um, in 1981, um, I started doing quite a bit of traveling. And I went to Peru. And while I was up at Machu Picchu, I, two times there, I suddenly had a, a big memory come up just walking across the field there, way up high at Machu Picchu, I, I had this strong memory and a very strong sense that I was a little girl, a very dark skin, uh, dark black hair, different features to some extent. In other words, very different than I as a woman with blonde hair and blue eyes, uh, very light skin. Um, but here I was, this dark little, dark skin, little black-haired girl, and very sturdy, and walking along barefoot, and into an area of stones, and followed a little, almost like a little roadway around to the left, and then to the right, and to the left, and into the door of my stone house. Now, those stone places really were there, but it was like I was remembering being a little girl and going into my house there. And I thought, well, how could that be? It was so realistic. And then the next day up there, I had a very traumatic thing, trying to climb the extra mountain uh, called Huayna Picchu, a big cone-shaped mountain that projects up from Machu Picchu. And I had climbed plenty of uh, mountains very safely and with confidence and enjoyment in this life. But at a certain point, at the edge of that steep mountain, I absolutely froze. I was frozen with terror. 
and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't move, and I was disgusted with myself, and I thought, I want to get to the top of this mountain. My friends were doing it. I would have always done it, but something's awful right now. I'm just paralyzed with terror. Well, eventually I realized that that came from what must have been a previous lifetime when I was a young, dark-skinned, black-haired man in a loincloth and little sandals running up that mountain, being chased by another young man, dark-skinned, black-haired, loincloth, but of a different tribe, apparently. And he had a knife. And when I got to that particular point on that mountain, he lunged at me with the knife. And to avoid the knife stabbing me, I kind of leaned over backwards, fell off the mountain, fell down a whole mile to these great boulders by the Urubamba River, and, of course, died. Well, see, I didn't know about that. and But there I was on this mountain in this life in 1981, and all of that memory came up, just seemingly out of nowhere. But it was so real, so dramatic, and, and so bodily effective in terms of being frozen with terror that... I, I really began to think, you know, this has got to be real. And then I began to think, you know, I'm already a licensed therapist. Maybe there's a way that if people can access difficult things that are, are affecting them now from a previous lifetime, you know, maybe there's a way to use this therapeutically. And then I discovered Helen Wamba's work about a year later. And a year after that, I met the founder of the Association for Past Life Research and Therapies, and went to their conference and started taking their training and began using the regression work in my therapy practice, along with many other forms of therapy I do. And then the extraterrestrial people started coming um, in 1991, and so uh, the rest has all unfolded from all of that. This also explains probably why people have this feeling that they're not living in the right place, that they're not situated geographically in the right place. Like, I've always had this longing to be in Europe, and I really don't want to be living in the United States. (laughs) And I don't know why. And the United States is beautiful. But I have this longing to be in Europe, and I keep saying to everybody, I've got to go home. (laughs) You know, and I have this thing with England and France, and it just won't leave me alone. It's probably from another time and place, or I have a divine commitment there. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you know, chances are extremely likely uh, that you have lived in Europe many, many lifetimes, and, and it does feel more at home for you. Um, gosh, back in 1973, and I didn't know for years how to, um, how to assimilate this or how to explain it to myself, but in 1973... So that's way before I ever thought about past lives. I was flying in an airplane from Los Angeles, um, you know, up across near the North Pole, and then land, you know, to go to London. And it was early morning when we were flying over England, coming down from the north, heading toward London, and I had a window seat. And I looked out the window, it was about probably 6.30 in the morning, so it was daylight in the month of June. I looked out the window, 
and I looked at those fields, and I suddenly felt awestruck and full of the most incredible, wonderful emotion. And the words kept going through my head, oh, I'm home. I'm finally home. <laughs> now, you see, before that trip, I thought, oh, it'll be interesting to go to England. And then we were going on to two or three other European countries. And I just thought, oh, that's going to be interesting, but nothing particular about it. But when I saw, gosh, when I saw that land down there, this huge feeling, and I had tears coming out of my eyes, like tears of joy. Well, I had no way to explain that to myself or to anybody else, but it all made sense many years later when I began to feel convinced that we really do have many, many lifetimes. Now, here's another thing. You talked about the longing right? go home, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because there are quite a number of people I've met and have done regressions with who've had a very strong sense of longing to go home, but for them, longing to go home means out there in space. And these people say, none of these people know each other, different people I've met along the way, but they each have said, ever since I can remember, I've wanted to go outside in the daytime or the nighttime, and I look up in the sky, and I think, oh, that's where I'm from. My home is out there. And even many people feel my real family, my true family is out there. And of course, if they say that to their actual Earth family they're living with, growing up, with, born <laughs> I'm to, sure it does not take well. <laughs> yeah, parents are sort of hurt. And but where are your parents? Oh, and, and and but the child says, "Well, yes, I know, I love you, and I'm appreciative of being with you, but my real family is out there." So when we progress to that sort of thing invariably it has come up that the person had had previous incarnations on one of those other planets as another type of being and then eventually came here um, incarnated as a human being instead of as one of those other beings an extraterrestrial being and so that's very rich material you know what their life was like then and what kind of being they are and you see, so many of these people who come from out there from previous lifetimes, they're a different kind of being, we would call extraterrestrial, um, they have volunteered or agreed with their own fellow beings to come here and live some lifetimes on Earth and to be visited by those beings. So you think that this is contractual in the Akashic Records? Is that kind of what... You're yes, saying, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but is that what you mean? I do. Okay. Well, you're asking great questions. <laughs> Good for you. You Jeff. didn't ask me my age. <laughs> I have to tell you a quick thing, and then I want you to finish. Years ago, I was representing this scientist who had a solution to take patients off kidney dialysis, and he put me on the phone with one of the funders. First thing the guy said to me is, how old are you? Well, I was very offended and all that, so I decided instead of being snippy, I would give him a funny answer, and I said... 
sir, would you like my Earth Age or my Soul Age? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I knew he'd say my Earth Age. And I said, sir, I'm 900 years old, but for you, I'm 36 or whatever I was at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I thought you'd like that. Oh, that's cute. That was worth it. But so when people are visited by other beings, not from Earth, this is contracted in the Akashic Records, like everything else. Yes. And a way that wow. we touch with that sometimes in regression, uh, when a person wonders, why me? Why am I having these contacts? You know, why isn't my brother having them or anybody else I know? And of course they'd wonder that. My goodness, who wouldn't? Um, so if they seriously want to know that, um, we'll do a regression back to the source of their having these contacts with these other beings. And there are two things that typically come up, well, with different people. One of them that comes up very frequently is that they have been that type of being in a previous life. And with full cooperation, full knowing, they've chosen to incarnate as a human being on Earth so that that species of beings can understand Earth life and Earth people. So it's been contracted by the soul of the person having been incarnated as one of those other types of beings on a different planet. So that's one scenario that comes up. And another one that frequently comes up is that we go back to what certainly seems to be the person's soul state of being, S-O-U-L, state of being. And where they're not in a body, but they're very conscious, and they have other non-embodied beings, spirit beings, around them, and they're discussing the lifetime that this person is about to be incarnated into. And they're looking at where the person's going to be and which kind of uh, uh, you know culture, race, etc., Um, what kind of economic situations, what kind of parents, family opportunities, or lack of opportunities, etc. And some of the main themes that they're going to be working on in this and they're about to go into. And into that session come some other beings, extraterrestrial beings, who are saying, basically, we're aware that you're going to be going into another lifetime now, and when you're in that lifetime, would you agree, along with all the other things you're going to be doing, would you agree to have us visit you and study you and learn about you, maybe even help you, maybe even teach you some things that you wouldn't learn on Earth? And this soul about to incarnate says, yes, okay, I'll do that. So therefore, the agreement is made. Now, an important thing is that when that person is born as a baby and goes being a little child and middle-aged child, teenager, adult, and so forth, that person usually doesn't remember what any of those soul agreements were about coming into this lifetime. So likewise, they they don't remember having made any agreement with any extraterrestrial beings. But the extraterrestrial beings remember, and they've been given permission by the soul, so they carry out the agreement and they come and 
and do these visits and uh, processes, whatever they are. And, uh, you know, they see this as perfectly okay because it's been agreed to by the soul. So it actually helps these people who wonder, why am I having contact? You know, why am I picked on? So it's not random. No, it's not. It's not just a little here and a little there or whatever. It's already in schedule almost. Yes. Okay. The Akashic Records, and this is all part of the Akashic Records. Sure. So, so, yes, and I was giving a lecture to my graduate school uh, two days ago to an honor society there, and I I could just see the eyes. These were uh, mostly, well, some were undergraduate graduates and even some faculty there, and um, they, they, their eyes were getting bigger and bigger, and they were looking very serious. And I said, now, it's important for you to know that if you, addressing everybody there, about 40, 45 people, if, you know, if any of you have not had experiences with extraterrestrial encounters, you probably never will, because this, as far as I can see, does not seem to be random. In other words, you're you're not just an innocent person walking down the street someday or driving home or sleeping in your bed, and this happens to you, that these beings come to you. It wouldn't happen to you, as far as I know, unless there's already been history here. So you already have some previous connection of some sort with those beings. And suddenly I could see the faces relaxing a little <laughs> in the audience, including the faculty. <laughs> I think it is important to know that. I think that's very perceptive and very interesting. And who would know better than you, right? I mean, really, that's true. Or anybody else who's um, actually done this kind of work with people and taken it back to why is it happening? Because I think it's so easy for people to you know, see a television program about this or hear about it. Uh, read one book about it, and then, um, you know, develop this fear, like, oh, I hope this doesn't happen to me, and develop fears of going to sleep at night. And that's so unnecessary and actually inappropriate. And then the people who really do have these experiences, and there are a lot of millions of people worldwide, are having extraterrestrial encounters. And um, so they, of course, do wonderfully well if they can get some help. And sometimes just finding a person to talk to about it who will take them seriously is extremely therapeutic. In fact, last night, a very nice-sounding young woman, I'm sure she must have been no um, older than her early 20s, it, it sounded, like she called me from Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska, had found me somehow on the Internet. And, um, and we talked for about an hour, and she told about the peculiar things that she'd been aware of happening, and um, including um, figures coming out of the woods that are near her home, and other people had seen them too, Not you know, her friends had seen them. And in her garage, she saw a strange being, and... Sometimes waking up at night, she'd see three beings, and and then she'd have unusual markings. I asked her about that, and just talking about it and having somebody care, 
and believe her because her parents didn't really, really believe her. They just kind of rolled their eyes and nod their heads when she'd talk about it. Um, so she wasn't getting any help there. It just just having somebody listen to her talk about it seemed to be a wonderful help. And also, I frequently can refer a person in a different geographical area to a therapist who does work with this. Um, currently, I'm the president of a professional group called the Academy of Clinical Close Encounter Therapists. And we have therapists in many different parts of the U.S. and even a few other countries who are trained. They're uh, therapists and trained hypnotherapists and regression therapists, and they um, they work with people who have these particular concerns. So whenever possible, I'm making a note of anybody I ever meet or hear of, you know, who does this work, and then I can give out referrals. I have a question about your early beginnings in this and how you were able to muster the requisite courage to go into these areas of, A, past life regressions, and B, doing the regressions having to do with extraterrestrial contact. How are you able to muster the courage to talk about it, to make yourself available without being ridiculed? Well, it, it has taken courage. And I've just done it anyway because I really feel that I have a very deep calling to do this. It was easier in terms of the past lives because, as I mentioned earlier, I was having these spontaneous past life recalls in Peru and Egypt, and I had a subsequent trip to Egypt in 1983 and had even more of these very vivid past life recalls in certain locations, and really quite astonishing. And one of those recalls, which happened in a sort of an underground tomb area, um, I, I had a very traumatic grief come up, and I couldn't understand it. Nobody else felt that in that tomb. I was with a group of people, uh, but I processed that for a whole two hours on a train after having that come up in me, this horrible grief and a flash memory of a, a wonderful man being crushed by a huge slab right there in that tomb. And um, and I, I processed it, and I didn't know about past life therapy then, but I was already a therapist, so I helped myself through that and remembered the whole incident, the whole lifetime. So having experienced that when I then found out about the Past Life Therapy Association and met those excellent therapists, being very impressed, um, that certainly made it easier for me to get into that part of the work. And I felt very at home with those people, too. That's a good clue that, wow, this is the right place for me to be. I never expected to be working in this kind of field, but this feels so deeply right. Now, then in terms of the extraterrestrial encounters, what happened first was that in my fifth year, my last year of training in past life regression therapy, 
the trainer, who is a woman I respected very much, she mentioned briefly to our group of trainees that those of us who are doing regression work might possibly sometime have someone come to us complaining about having visitations from very strange beings, maybe even being taken away for an hour or two, and being very traumatized by this. Well, you see, I had never heard of that before. That was, I think, 1988. But when she said that, not only was I startled that apparently this sort of thing was happening to people, but of what I call the big voice of my soul, in other words, a very emphatic, loud voice inside myself, said, pay attention to this, Barbara. You will be doing this. So there I was with the cognitive dissonance of hearing that people get visited and taken away by unusual beings from off the planet. That was amazing enough. But then this big inner voice saying, I will be doing this, that is doing regression work with this sort of situation. I mean, I was absolutely stunned and startled, so much so that we just went on with the rest of the past life training and I never even mentioned it again. But after that, in other words, in the last couple of years, uh, next three years or so, I um, found myself trying to find out about the UFO reality and going to lectures about it, if I could find them, or reading about it to some extent, and um, and even about people being visited by these extraterrestrial beings, having these encounters, and missing time, and markings on their body, and all that kind of stuff. And I respected the people I was hearing talk about that. And then in 1991, one day you know, having thought about this for a few years, one day I concluded, you know, I think that if anyone ever did come to me about that, I think I could handle it because I think this is real. Well, <laughs> as life happens, mystically, <laughs> maybe guided, I'm not sure. Um, the very next day, a woman in a bookshop I visited said, oh, I understand that you do regression work. Would you work with my daughter? Oh, wow. 21-year-old daughter. She's very highly traumatized because these strange beings visit her in the night and take her away for a while. And, um, and she's just absolutely terrified to go to sleep. She's dropped out of college. She's dropped out of her part-time job. And she's just almost inoperable. And you see, how wonderful that a day earlier I had decided that if anybody ever found me, I wasn't going to go looking for it, um, I would be ready. I'd be able to, to work with that. And so here it was, and then very shortly thereafter, a couple of days later, her daughter did come, and we worked for six sessions through various material that she'd had with these unusual beings. And the seventh session, she came in for her appointment, and 
was all smiles and looking relaxed. And she said, you know what? I've decided that I think I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged. I'm honored to be visited by these beings, to be part of this program, whatever it is, between other beings and humans. And she had also been healed by these beings. She'd had a chronic lower back condition for two or three years, and a blue beam of light from a UFO had reached her back as she was running away from it in a field with her sister who witnessed all this and uh, corroborated it. Anyway, the blue beam of light from the UFO had healed her back pain. And she that was one of the reasons why she felt, you know, this is really an advantage and I feel privileged and I'm not afraid anymore. So that was the most wonderful beginning, not only for her, but for me, uh, thinking, okay, if anybody else comes, I'm ready. <laughs> and then a woman came oh, about three months later and worked with me for 10 years with oh, at least 50 regressions and many wow. discussions and conversations. And she got through her trauma, her fear, her terror, went on very helpfully to be a wonderful healer in life. And we had discovered in some of the regressions that she was being trained by various extraterrestrials in different modes of healing and was actually running um, energy beautifully and healing people here on Earth. And she, like many other people I've regressed, have found that she also had... Um, a special mission in terms of helping to um, improve our ecology, very interested in ecological concerns, and that she recognized she had been ever since she was a very, very young child, like, oh, don't waste water, don't let extra water run out of that hose. And we found out that the beings who were working with her from birth onward um, had noticed her from afar. They noticed that she was very concerned about water and the earth and resources and nature and don't step on those flowers. She'd say to her little kid, don't tromp on the lawn like that. That's a living being. You know, so they noticed that and they helped and encouraged her throughout her life and being very, very interested in ecological concerns and the well-being of the earth. You really don't have any fear in this area, do you? No, I don't. And um, I, as it has happened, as, as it has happened, um, beginning in 1994, I've had a few encounters too, and I would I would rate them as emotionally neutral, or even very positive. And, of course, very surprising, very startling. When you say encounters, can you be more detailed or do you yes, not well, want to? Well, each encounter was with a different type of extraterrestrial being. And uh, it all began, if you, do you want to hear about this? I would love for you to share whatever you're guided to share. Okay. Because it was coming into the space to ask you, like, you're so close to it, you're facilitating so many people. You're bringing through healings. You're bringing through recognition. You're honoring the people that have had these experiences and getting them to begin life again and to bring back the joy and all that. And it just occurred to me that 
she's got to have had an experience, you know? <laughs> Perceptive of you. And, well, I mean, it's kind of in there. And you have a piece about it that's unusual. So we would love to hear, and I would love to hear whatever you're guided to share. And then I do want to ask you about your take about G-O-D. <laughs> Not the religious stuff, but uh-huh. just uh-huh. what you think about, is there a God, is there a creator, blah, blah, blah. Yes, okay. <laughs> I ask you the we'll, small we'll, questions. <laughs> we'll take the first one first. Oh, but please. <laughs> yes, a tiny little one-sentence question. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of my own experiences, in 1994, um, the woman I continued to work with for a total of 10 years, she also was, during some of our sessions, channeling an extraterrestrial being, a very fine being, who was her mentor, really a lifelong teacher mentor. And he was an extraterrestrial from our point of view, didn't live on Earth. He said he lived on the planet Antares. And that is definitely in our star maps. We can um, recognize that name and, and even where it is. And... um he, in the channeling sessions, he gave so much information. This was really a very fascinating thing. And I felt extremely privileged because I could have conversations with him. That is, his voice would come through my client, and she was in a light state of trance. And I would have conversations with him and record them so she could hear them later. And in one of those sessions in the winter of 1994, he already had been well aware that I had been for a few years going over to England to research and visit the crop circles and that that was a very, very keen interest of mine. And I was giving lectures about it and learning everything, excuse me, everything about it that I could. And he said, um, in one of these channelings, he said, Barbara, if you would like to, you could go with some of the beings for the making of these crop circles. And at first I I felt thrilled, excuse me, and then I felt kind of concerned, like, oh, my gosh, would that be safe? Would that be okay for me? How would that happen? Would I know about it? And I asked all those questions. And he said, "You you could go any way that you wish. You could be fully conscious and awake, although it would most likely be in the middle of the night because that's when they come and make most of the crop circles. you know. Or um, you could be totally asleep and not aware of anything, maybe somehow figure it out later. Um, or you could go totally physically and be aware or not be aware, or you could go astrally, that is, that your body... Uh, remain sleeping in bed, but your whole astral sense, your spirit, your soul, your consciousness um, goes for the experience, um, or any combination of the above. Well, I had to think about that. Here's where the bravery comes in. <laughs> now you're even braver than I thought. You're well, way was, more brave. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think your brave. brave Megatron, major, 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 capital B. Well, you know, I'm I'm an Aries, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that because that's taken me many times to many, many different parts of the world that 
I probably wouldn't have made the effort to get to if it hadn't been for the fact that I have that Aries aspect of exploring the unknown and doing unusual things and getting out there. So um, I'm happy about that. But in this case, um, I, I was intrigued but really reticent. And it took me six months to get ready to agree, yes, I'd like to have that experience. Just before I left for England that July 1994, um, and Ohana was channeling again, I said, okay, Ohana, yes, I, I would like to have that experience, but I don't think I want to be aware of all of it, but I want to know it happened. See, for me, that was perfect. That was safe. And so he said, okay, then you have to mean it and you have to invite them. And what I suggest is that you speak out loud to them for a period of time, uh, not just for a minute or two, but an extended period of time, and tell them that you really want to have this experience, you'd be honored, you're studying this phenomenon, you really are involved in it, the crop circles, you really want to know everything about it. And um, so ask them with total earnestness. And so I did that. The the uh, day before flying to England, I was driving an hour in the one of the Southern California freeways toward the airport, and um, and I talked out loud. I was by myself in my car and talked out loud and praised them and honored them and thanked them for making these beautiful crop circles and communicating with us this way and bringing our attention to these mysteries and wonders and other possible civilizations out there in space. And, and then said, I would really like, please take me for the making of a crop circle. And I really did mean it. And especially when I thought, well, okay, I wouldn't be aware of everything, and so therefore it wouldn't be too scary. So I went to England, and about three and a half weeks later, I realized, oh, you know, I don't think that has happened. And this is my last night before the last day of visiting crop circles this year. So I remembered, luckily, and I asked again very vehemently, and I turned off the bedside table lamp uh, to go to sleep, and then I saw three figures coming toward me from the window, and there was backlight, you know, coming through the window, outside light. I could see just silhouettes, and they had heads that were much bigger on the top, didn't look like they had any hair. I couldn't see any features. Very unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, definitely not humans. <laughs> and little necks, little shoulders, short beings. I'm already ready to scream for the scream you didn't do. I didn't. I didn't. And what I did was lift my head from the pillow because I was excited, actually. A little scared, yes, but excited, thinking, oh, oh, maybe they were really going to take me for the making of a crop circle. And then they sort of backed up as I lifted my head. And then I put my head down. And they started coming toward me again, and then I was just out of consciousness, totally, until the alarm clock rang and woke me up the next morning. 
Well, that very next day, the big group I was with, it was a conference group, and we got on board a uh, double-decker English bus, drove about 45 minutes, and from the top deck of the bus, I saw a field that we had gone by the day before, and it had no depression of the crop in it, but this day, it did. I could say, oh, it looks like there's a crop circle over there, a new one. And so when the bus stopped, I rushed out, hopped into the car of a friend of mine with a couple of other people who heard me exclaiming about this, and we went back, and we were the first ones in a brand-new crop circle, which was a wonderful thrill. It was beautiful and so fresh and sparkling, sparkling with a little sound even. And so I, you know, finished that trip and came home. And a few months later, I asked a colleague to regress me to that night where I had asked again for being taken for the making of a crop circle. And lo and behold, the whole thing unfolded. I think it's true as far as I can tell, preposterous as it is, and was taken from the bed out through the wall where the wall meets the ceiling out through the air, guided by three beings behind, and then um, sort of lifted up into a small, round enclosure. I assume it was a craft up in the air. And we proceeded with the process of making the crop circle, which was very, very quick. And then I was returned back to bed again and, and remembered nothing until this regression. So in my estimation... You know, this was really a very positive, wonderful thing that these beings had responded to my sincere request. And this reminds me that there are many people I've met who really want to have contact with other beings, with extraterrestrial beings. And, and they ask me, do you think it's possible for me to have contact, even though I don't think I ever have had encounters with them before. And I say, yes, I think it's possible. I can say that with conviction because I asked for it. And it was granted. And I said, if you want contact, definitely ask for very benevolent beings only to come to you. Because there are many, many different types of beings that do come and interact with people. Some of them seem to be much more self-serving and seem to be very uncaring about studying us and doing all kinds of physical procedures with us and putting implants in us and um, taking samples of skin and fluid and uh, do reproductive processes with us too. And if that's not the kind of experience you want, ask for the very loving benevolent beings, which there are many, many of as well, and to ask them, talk out loud and energetically send your positive feeling and your thought out to them and honor them and appreciate them, compliment them, and say why you want this kind of contact. And Very interesting. are quite likely that this wish may be granted. I, I don't know if it's a sure thing, but if you really want that kind of contact, it does work sometimes. 
and is worth trying. Very interesting. I imagine that your views about God and your views about a creator may have changed, if you had any at all. Well, and, Did I you talk did. about I, that? I, yes, I did. I was um, brought up in a, um, a very liberal Protestant church, which my family was very, very active in. And I married a young man who um, went through theological school. I feel like I went through it with him. <laughs> unofficially, while I was supporting us, and um, and then he became an ordained minister and was with the church for oh probably about ten years on the east coast of the U.S. and um, that was a different time of life, and so definitely that was something I uh, thought about a lot. You know, God, what is the nature of God, and <clears throat> what is spirituality. And um, uh, then in later years, I, I would say that I've become more spiritually oriented and um, very much believing that there is a creative source, there is God, there is this source that uh, can be thanked and can be prayed to. And I, I still feel that. And then... With these contacts with the extraterrestrials, I have um, sort of a reinforcement about all this when they talk about it, because these beings, too, these extraterrestrial beings, at least many of them, talk about how it's just absolutely assumed amongst them that there is this creative source, there is this living creative energy, and they're all part of it. They recognize that we call that source God. They don't necessarily have a name or a word for it, such as we do, but they um, definitely have a sense of that allness, oneness, uh, creative source, and which we would call God. Do they recognize that it's intelligent or more intelligent than them, if you know what I'm saying? Yes, they do attribute great intelligence to this creative source. And it's something that, at least with some of these groups, uh, seems to be so interwoven into their understanding of things. And they're more psychic anyway, many of these species of beings. More psychic, more intuitive, more knowing um, they all seem to be telepathic in their communicating, and therefore they they know each other's thoughts. They they know everything about everyone. Um, it, it's there are not secrets and hiddenness like we have here with our human species. So it's just much more open, mutual, accepting, and that creative source is part of it all which they seem to accept very naturally. So they don't, at least the groups that I've been able to get any information from, from these regressions and from the channeling, they don't have uh, churches per se, they don't have religions, they don't have different groups with different beliefs, uh, they don't have conflicts between groups because of that sort of thing. 
do you think that that's really possible, Barbara, no matter how spiritual a group is, that there's still differentiation amongst and between groups that distinguish them and that there's no competition, there's no hierarchy, there's no polarity at all? Well, here on Earth, um, this seems to be the planet of polarity. Okay. You know, and I've heard this through a number of other sources as well, but the extraterrestrials recognize that too. And uh, that whatever we have here in any category of anything, uh, there are the opposites, the polar opposites. Even the Chinese, you know, had this wonderful philosophy, and many still do, of the yin-yang. Right. Depicted in the mandala symbol where there's, and that's the union and the interplay of opposites, opposite of everything, light, dark, in, out, up, down, good, bad, etc. And so on Earth, we're very much involved in that happiness, sadness, you know. And so, um, and we do have all these sort of differentiated groups and different beliefs, and and we have so much competition here. But on other planets, uh, some of those societies don't have that. They, they just don't operate that way. And that's one of the reasons why we fascinate so many of those species from out there because we operate so differently and we have greed and we have war and we have selfishness and we have benevolence and kindness and goodness and the arts and music and uh, so much creativity here, but we have so much over and againstness. And so some of those species are very fascinated with that because they don't have that. You know, they're, they're much more um, like-minded, shall we say, much more on the same page, and they they don't have all that competitive, comparative stuff going on. So I think that it is possible for beings uh, to be more all-accepting, all-encompassing, homogeneous in a sense um, with each other than we are. But I don't know that Earth human beings are ever going to evolve past all these differences that we seem to emphasize. I hope we will, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not counting on it. But it's reassuring to me that there are some species out there that do life a lot better in many ways than we do. And I wish that we could evolve more toward that ourselves. When you met that woman who wrote the book of going into a progression into the future and then yes. she passed away. Helen Wambach. Right. Can you share a little bit about what she saw in the future? Well, many, many people she regressed. Uh, if they went ahead, and I hope I'm remembering this accurately, but it will give you a sense anyway. Uh, if they went ahead about 150 years what they tended to see was that there were no more tall buildings or even uh, medium-sized buildings, that the land, wherever it was that they visited, usually in the United States, um, was pretty much, had been pretty much laid bare, was more like um, just plain dirt or a desert, and that people were living in 
inside very large domes, glass-like domes, um, in which they had farms and uh, vegetable gardens and so forth. They were growing their food, and they had sources of water, um, sources of air, and but they were living under the protection of domes as if there had been a huge um, destruction and destroying most of what we know, what most of what we have now, and that perhaps the air was so badly polluted that they had to survive inside these domes. So it was mostly bare land and some things beginning to grow, but nothing very substantial. Then these domes here and there that people were actually living their whole lifetimes in. You know, you and I are living at a time right now where there is a organizational attempt to take over all of the seed supply and alter the molecular structure of seeds to own the rights to all seeds, I know. to patent the molecular structure of seeds. That group has infiltrated our governments. They are the agricultural directors for Obama. It's really frightening. And then the aerosol spraying of our air and the contamination with the three different chemicals that have been tested. If there are ETs, why don't they stop that? Why don't they help us and stop those groups that are destroying everything, literally everything? Well, it's come through in a number of these regressions of some statements from them about this sort of thing. What keeps getting, being said by different groups of ETs is that there is uh, what we might think of as a prime directive or a universal principle, a universal law, uh, that they are not to substantially interfere with a whole species like the human species on Earth. However, if it comes to the point, because a lot of them care about the Earth and about humanity, if it comes to the point that we are on the brink of nuclear extermination, that is something that they feel justified in intervening on. And they actually have, we think, um, intervened because um, back in, I think it was the 1970s, um, at one of the Air Force missile bases up in northern Montana, um, it was seen by a number of witnesses that several UFOs came over these big missile silos, these big vertical tubes, so to speak, and removed the tops of these silos and went in and um, turned off the mechanism that could release the missiles, which were aimed up and over toward Soviet Union at that time. I actually heard that from Carol Rosen as well, verified. Fascinating. But for example, the aerosol spraying, I mean, these geoengineers are so insane. They want to turn it up to 200 parts per million. What they're already doing is killing the food supply. They're killing plant life. They're killing animals. This is going into our lungs. I would almost want to ask the ETs to stop this. I don't care if they had to blow out the planes in the air to intervene on that level. It's that level of seriousness. It's going to kill the whole population. It, it really is extremely serious. And, of course, I can't answer for them, but I just know that they have this um, uh, principle, um, maybe it's even a law on their part to, you know, 
try to inspire people, try to help them out, try to give them good reasoning, good ideas, good technology, even free technology they give to some people who are, are trained technologically, but not to really interfere unless it looks like in a massive way that all of humanity might be destroyed. They also worry about our nuclear capability because they say that our nuclear pollution would not only be all around and in the earth, but it goes out even into outer space. Right, right. Isn't it like 500,000 years it lasts or something? Well, yes, something really outrageous like that. And then I think that most of us have not particularly had an idea of how far into space the nuclear pollution would carry. And so they are worried about some of their planets and their atmosphere if we start setting off nuclear bombs and then that gets retaliated with more nukes. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's not only that we'd be destroying ourselves, but we'd be seriously harming if not destroying some of them, too. So, you know, it's it's really a big deal. Do you think that in our lifetime we will witness or be privy to the fact that there is a, a nuclear detonation or some type of a war in the Middle East or oh, in the United States? No, I, <laughs> you're just asking one person among the citizenry who doesn't know anything more about this than than you do. All I can say is I certainly hope not. Right. And I think it's worth any of us who really think about these things, it's really worth it for us to at least use our consciousness about this, to um, pray if that's your way of using your consciousness, meditate if that's your way, send out your thought if that's your way, um, to calming everything over there, to seeing resolution happen between those groups of people and between us, between some of our forces here who are doing heaven knows what um, with other people over there colluding in various projects. And I think in a very practical way, those of us who are caring about this need to really pay attention to the news and the news behind the news that the non-corporate uh, radio stations put on, and um, we're not influenced by corporations. In other words, you're more free to dig out the truth and put it out there on the radio. Uh, listen to what's happening behind the scenes and writing to our officials as much as possible, email, calling, writing. I know it's hard for me to find the time to do it, and probably most of you and your listeners too, but Boy, it, it's worth it, and I always feel good when I do somehow fit that in to the busy day. But um, to register, like this whole thing about the seeds that you mentioned and the chemtrails polluting our air and really making a lot of people sick and um, so many things, buying up the water rights, corporations buying up the water rights and buying up huge tracts of lands in other countries. I just heard that one yesterday. Um, you know, it's very difficult because I think there are real power groups behind the groups that we see, that we hear about. Uh, but I think we can just do what we can do, and it's really important that we do it. I agree with you. 
your work is so fascinating and there's so much more to talk to you about. I really want to invite you to come back. Oh, I'd be happy to. It's an honor and a pleasure. And also, I do want to read your book on crop circles as well. Oh, yes. And I'd like to mention uh, the name of that book is Crop Circles Revealed. My co-author is Judith Moore, who does some very interesting work, as well as my work on that book. And and then my uh, second book is called Alien Experiences. And you can buy these books through my website, which is www.barbaralammft.com. Barbara Lamb, MFT, MFT is for Marriage and Family Therapist, or um, Amazon.com. Both of them are for sale there. So if you want to learn more about any of these subjects, there's plenty of very interesting information and pictures, lots of illustrations as well of extraterrestrials in that book, Alien Experiences, and Oh, 367 pictures of crop circles in Crop Circles Revealed. Fabulous. Very, very excited to talk with you and absolutely delighted. Learned a lot and look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, Barbara Lamb. Oh, you're very welcome.